0: It's my understanding that you're in the middle of a sermon series, which I find fascinating, called The Untamed Jesus, Strange Sayings and Strong Words from the Prince of Peace. I'm a teacher by heart, so I'm going to review. There's no quiz, though, so you can relax. Okay. Uh, week one, Ryan helped us through with this issue of pigs and pearls, or pearls and pigs. Really, he's talking about Jesus saying that we should exercise discernment in terms of how and what we should speak. Week two is the dividing sword. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace, but a sword. There's a destination involved in coming to know Jesus. Jesus is not one of these easy-peasy kind of co-pilot guys. He's a divider. You make a decision one way or the other. Week three, what God requires. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He wants to deliver us from ways we use the text. Week four, I think this was last week, drastic measures. By the way, friends, the text here, if your right hand offends you, cut it off, is a metaphor. Okay, I'm sure he said that. But the reason I say that, because I don't know where my words are going, I've known folk who took it literally and one kid actually cut off his hand. That's not what the text is about. Do you all hear me? Shake your head, yes. Okay, But coming to Jesus requires drastic measures. Now today I'd like to consider another strange saying, or rather a strange story. And you have it on your notes on the other side of your handout. It's Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. I'd like you to follow along while I read it. The text will also be on the screen behind me. Jesus is responding to criticisms of how he's spending his time and he speaks to both critics and his followers with these words. Luke 16, verses 1 to 15. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking my job away. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are far more shrewd in the dealings with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will you trust with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will you give your property the property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Now, if you've read this, you've probably said, what in the world is going on? I want to let you know this is one of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament. My wife says it's the one she hates the most. We have an interesting relationship, you see. Let's get to the main point, the most obvious point of the text. It's the thing that drives the logic for everything that follows. It's this. We are all managers of the resources that our creator has given us. Uh, I want you to repeat it after me. I am a manager. Together, I am a manager. In other words, we don't own anything. It's given to us to use. And you see on your outline that there's a kind of logic that flows out of that from this text. If you put it in a thesis statement, it works something like this. As managers, we should know or practice, first of all, number one, the sureness of our Lord's requirements. One day we're going to have to give account. Okay. Second big point: we should survey our limited resources. The manager says, "What am I going to do now?" Okay. And thirdly, we should enact a strategy that will gain us long-term—may I say it—eternal results. Now, a little bit of background because you can't understand the text without the background. Okay. Before looking at the story proper, allow me to survey the background in which this takes place. Jesus' critics, the religious elites of his day, are accusing him of wasting his time by hanging out with losers. Uh, people like me. I've lost most of my hair. Jesus still loves me. I'll let you know that, okay? He's hanging out with lowlifes. He's hanging out with people who don't practice all the religious boxes and do not check things off. So Jesus defends his strategy by giving a series of stories. Luke 15 and 16 are meant to be read together. You're familiar with the stories of Luke 16. The first one is about a sheep that's lost. And the shepherd goes leaves the 99 behind and goes after the one that's lost. You remember the story. Shake your head. You're with me, right? Correct. And the second one is a story of a woman who's lost a coin, a silver coin. She doesn't worry about the nine she's got, but she searches everything high and low to find the one. The third story is about a father who loses his two sons, <laughs> one geographically, the other relationally. Now, you understand the progression. It goes from one to 100, to one to 10, to one to... Two or one. So Jesus tells these stories to help us understand what's going on. These stories each deal with great reversals. The recognition of lostness and the realization of being found. And at the end of each story, there's a huge celebration. It's against that context that Jesus tells the story we've just read. But it's followed by another story that takes place that's typically called Lazarus and the Dives. Lazarus is a wealthy guy, and the Dives is poor folk. And at the end of life, Lazarus wakes up and finds himself in a place of torment, whereas the person who has been poor, he's in Abraham's bosom. He's living the good life. All of these stories describe the choice that the main characters need to make in response to the grace and governance of God. One final introductory note. Jesus has just finished his story of the prodigal sons. You know the story, you've heard it 100 times, yes? What's fascinating is the story leaves the audience with a cliffhanger. In fact, we would really like the story to continue we're left with questions that this next story starts to answer. Like, will the older brother hear the father's entreaty and come back to the house for the celebration? We don't know. Will the younger brother be restored to a life of productivity? Do prodigals end up becoming productive people? Boy, I would I'd spend a lot of money to find the end of that story. Because all of us have no folk who have gone down the road the wrong way and come back and then just go off the deep end again. Or, will the townspeople who have joined in in the celebration, will they look down on the father who acts with utter lack of decorum? What the father does, first of all, by running, and secondly, by celebrating the return of the son is something that ancient fathers of the first century should never do. And this would play havoc with the nature of the social structure of that day. Would they say, gee, you did a great thing, dad. Or would they look down on him and say, what in the world are you doing? Or, this is my best one, what will this event mean for other observing members in the community when their kids go awry? Jesus doesn't answer the questions. Instead, against this background, he merges into this next story. And he begins this story with an accusation. A rich man says to his manager, What is this I hear about you? The first management reality. We should all be aware of the sureness of our Lord's requirements. Give an account. Somehow or other in the story, and we're not told how, This rich man finds out about the poor work ethic of his manager steward. The brief introduction makes two assumptions that we should know, they're in your outline. The first is the rich man has expectations. He's delegated property and domain to his steward so that the steward will make what he's delegated greater. God expects to give the stuff that we have to us so we just won't waste it, but we'll invest it and make something bigger and in the process be able to make a living in the process. The rich man has expectations. Secondly, the rich man has an evaluation. He wants to know what's going on and he's heard through the grapevine that this manager isn't functioning the way he wants. He is wasting the possessions that's been given to him. So the rich man decides two things. One, that this steward manager, his term of service is over. And two, he wants to know how bad the damage really is. So he asks the manager to give an account. Now, if you forget everything else, remember the next two minutes, Okay, What you need to hear is that there's a delay between the determination and the dismissal. Shake your head if you're following me now, okay? In other words, the rich guy is saying, your job's done. But I want to find out how bad it really is. We don't know whether that time is a couple hours, a couple days. We don't know how far away the rich man really lives. He may have to take several months to get to where the manager has domain over his properties. There's some time between the determination of the end of the manager's rule and his ultimate dismissal. What's not left in doubt, however, is that this man, the rich man, has expectations and he will evaluate. It's not too hard to see the parallels behind the story. Jesus is telling the story, and behind the story, there's another set, there's kind of a dialogue going on. And it's this, we're all steward managers of the riches that God's given to our care, physically, morally, spiritually, intellectually. And at one point, we will be called to give an account as to how we use them. And secondly, we're all called to give an account regarding what God has given us freely. We don't own anything. Uh, can I give an illustration? Uh, I know a guy. Don't you love stories that begin this way? I'm trying to protect the, uh, the, the guilty of how this works. I know a guy who has count them, between he and his wife and second wife and kids and stepkids and adopted kids, he's got, count them, 12 kids. 12 kids. So he and his wife decided that they were going to give a test for their kids. Now, what you also got to know is that this guy is relatively wealthy, relatively wealthy. The problem is almost all of the kids and stepkids are not walking with Jesus. And he's getting older, and he's wondering, What's going to happen when he dies with his estate? So he and his wife made this decision. They decided they would give each of their kids, a couple years ago, $10,000. There's some IRS implications. $10,000 is what you can give year by year to your kids. With the implication that they would use it, hopefully, to enhance their education, because most of the kids barely made out of high school. As one guy in our church said, they didn't graduate magna cum laude, they graduated magna cum lucky, you see. The fascinating thing about it is almost all of them within the last two years have blown through the 10,000, and have nothing to show for it. Because this guy wants to know how to prepare for the future we must all give an account. Can I just stop just a tad here? This should shake you right down to your sandals today. How we spend our time, how we spend the meager resources of money that comes to us, how we use relationships, how we interact with our kids, grandkids, stepkids, adopted kids, kids we don't have a clue about, how we care for things is something that one day God's going to say, what did you do with the time I gave you? It's against this backdrop that Jesus changes his focus in the story. I'm a lit guy way back, and you'll realize that what Jesus does is he moves from narrative to interior monologue. And he gives us how this manager starts to think. And he begins to serve, this guy starts to survey his limited resources. He asks himself, what shall I do now? The rich man's evaluation seems to have come as a shock to the manager. He thought things were just going to go along swimmingly. And so we're given this interior story or debate that the manager has with himself. And what's fascinating is that the manager doesn't take time to do what's so prevalent in our culture. The first thing he doesn't do is he doesn't play the victim. A lot of people I know would do that. They would say something like, my boss is impossible. He has no clue. Everything is, you know, you should have sympathy for me. You have no idea. It didn't rain when it was supposed to. It was a tough, 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 tough kind of job. Secondly, He doesn't plunge into despair. All this stress, I mean, I'm sleepless at night. I need Zoloft and other things. I mean, you know how this works, you see. I play this game myself. Thirdly, he doesn't participate in the blame game. You know, it's not my fault. It's someone you fill in the blank. Friends. It is real easy in the face of the accountability that God's gonna hold us to, to anticipate that down the road and say, boy, I had such a wretched family life. Or I was raised in southeastern Connecticut. Nothing good comes out of southeastern Connecticut. Northeast Connecticut, no, that's a whole different story. It's God's country around here, you see. I made the mistake of only coming here for four years over at Yukon and then had the temerity to actually leave this manager doesn't do any of those things but instead starts to talk to himself and he quickly takes stock of his thing stop problem yeah. and he makes two categories of his resources the first is a personal survey he talks about what he can't do he can't make work work He's fragile physically, and he feels shame. He's not strong enough to dig, and he's too embarrassed to go beg. But he does take a public survey, and he realizes that he has some information that nobody else has. He understands that while his term of service is over, nobody else knows that. The debtors still see him as functioning under the aegis of the rich guy. Nobody else knows that. In fact, when he calls them in to give account, he says, how much do you owe my master? And they think, my goodness, he actually is speaking for the rich guy because they don't know that his term of service is coming to an end. As a result, he embarks on a strategy that has several consequences. Let me list at least three or four or five. Okay? The first is a, is, is a result or a reaction on the part of the debtors. They come in, can you imagine coming into the bank and it says, among other things, that you owe on your mortgage $300,000. And the banker says, a new grant has come through, write it down, you only owe $150,000. What would your reaction be? Bring it on. See? By the way, that happened to a friend of mine. Lived in Norwich. And you remember there was a, in in some of the loans that were starting to give out that were coalesced under the great thing, they couldn't produce the title for the loan. And the federal government said, you you think you owe 300,000, it's all written off because we can't prove who owns the title. You know what his reaction was? Praise the Lord. Most of us would love to be caught up in that thing. But there's a longer term reaction. The longer term reaction would be, Thanksgiving, let's have a party. And this kind of makes this story sync with the other two stories, three stories before. When the shepherd finds the lost sheep, celebrate with me. When the woman finds the lost cone, let's have a party. When the lost son comes back, the father says, come on, my son was dead, now he's alive. And all of a sudden they're saying, my goodness, this is great. Now, there's some reactions ultimately to the manager himself. The first in the short term, he experiences loss because a certain percentage of the income of the people who work for the rich man comes to him. Well, he's going to get less, but he's willing to trade off the loss in the short term for the long term thing, which is security. When he loses his job, he realizes, at least they've got a place to go. And these folks are going to think so well of me, they'll say, oh, that rich guy probably didn't take care of you. Come on, you can stay in the back hut in my house. But there's a fifth reaction, and it's the rich man's reaction. Here we get to the nub of the story. The debtors don't know that the manager is going to be terminated. They think he speaks for the rich man. So one of the things that this strategy does is it raises the esteem of the rich man in the eyes of the tenant farmer. The rich man all of a sudden starts to look really like a pretty good guy. In fact, his esteem is raised so high that they all think, my goodness, I would love to work for that guy because here I owed so much and now I only owe half of it. So when the rich guy comes in to ultimately do the books, he's faced with a town that says, yay, so glad to see you. You understand what the manager's done. He's made it such that the rich guy can't go back on it and say, no, 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 You thought you owed half. Now you got to owe the full thing. No, because he likes the esteem. You see, the strategy is shrewd on the part of the manager. When we give, stuff that God's given to us in the name of God, God gets greater and greater in the eyes of everyone around. Illustration. My grandmother, we called her Nana Kissick, was an old Scot lady who had come over from the Wiesod and could speak Rabbi Baran's poetry in the correct pronunciation. I've tried, but I get close, you see. My grandmother had the gift of giving She was poor. Never she and my grandfather made a lot of money. But one of the things they longed to do was get out of Philadelphia. They wanted to have a place in the country. They would have loved to be in Willington, Stores, Mansfield. So they put money down on a one and a half acre parcel of land in a little town called Clementon, New Jersey and for 40 years paid taxes on this one and a half acres, only to discover that most of it was swamp, and probably couldn't have put a piece of uh, house there if they had tried, but they still paid taxes on it. My grandmother was almost ready to die, and she had given away almost all the money she had, but God loved to help her give things away to people, relatives, missionaries, et cetera. One day, my father was in his office, And he got a phone call from a lawyer in central New Jersey saying, I understand you are the one who works or is representative of Mrs. Mary Kissick. Husband Robert has deceased. We are interested to know if you would like to sell the one and a half acres of land that they've owned for 40 years in Clementon, New Jersey. My father said, well, they've paid taxes on it. You know, it was marginal amount, $100 a year. It was undeveloped. How much would you like to give? Would you offer? The lawyer said, well, we're prepared to give you $500. My father being shrewd and a businessman said, we'll get back to you. So from his office, he called another lawyer's office, found out that the one and a half acres was right snap dab in the middle of a, house, a, a, a shopping center that wanted to be developed. My grandmother got $10,000 for that. Which 20 years ago was a significant chunk of change. And she gave away virtually all of it. Why? Because you can't outgive God. <laughs> Two huge points so far in our story. One, the rich man is trying to figure out how we use his resources. And two, we need to survey how we'll use those same resources. Now, let's get to the point of Jesus' story. It's basically found in verse 9. This is the strategy he encourages us to model to gain long-term results. Jesus says in verse 9, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it, that is worldly wealth, is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The major values are pretty evident. We're here at St. Paul's Church. We understand we live in this world that people have priority over possessions, that this, uh, that time has not the same priority as eternity does, that among other things, we can should anticipate life after death and not just live life before death. But the manager's strategy to gain a good result has four applications that Jesus kind of anticipates or encourages us to see. The first has to do with progression. How we deal with the small stuff of life is an indicator of how we'll deal with the larger things. Jesus tells these stories with the Pharisees as being the primary audience, and he says that their their focus is in the wrong place. They're, they're, They're focused on money. But from the point of view of eternity, money doesn't count a lot. Don't get yourself all bent out of shape by what you have or don't have. But how you deal with what God does give you anticipates how you will deal with the stuff that lasts forever. Second, the manager's strategy to gain a good result deals with persons. How are we to make friends? Well, in this case, what the manager did was he made his master look good by forgiving the debt that those people owed his master. Friends, one of the great, great, great joys I have is that you don't, your debt is not just halved, it's forgiven, (laughs) and that you have the possibility of being someone who could stand before God completely clear of any debt, morally, spiritually, ethically. And I can do that because he's forgiven me. (laughs) When we give away the grace of heaven, we not only enrich our own destiny, but we enhance the reputation of a gracious God. C.S. Lewis was going by a debate in Oxford one day, and they were debating which religion was the best one. He said, That's a piece of cake. It's Christianity. Because it's the only religion that deals with grace. All the others, you have to do something. Friends, we can be managers of the grace of God. We can either hoard it or we can give it away. Third lesson has to do with pictures. Each of these stories in Luke's 15 and 16 have characters and roles that have Jesus standing behind them. He's telling the story, but he's actually standing behind the story. And he tells the story to grab people's attention, but then asks them to see through the story so they'll see who he is. And remember, Jesus is being criticized because he's wasting his time with people that the Pharisees don't think are worth it. Hence, these stories are all about kingdom economics. What's the value that Jesus places on people? So Jesus, in each case, stands behind the stories, and in some ways he agrees with these Pharisees by saying, you know, don't look like a great guy because you're not doing the right stuff and Jesus says you know I agree with you from the point of view of the shepherd he leaves behind the 99 sheep to go after one that's a lousy shepherd who would prioritize one sheep over 99 and forget them where's the economy of scale there or he's like the woman who can't keep track of her coins So she loses one, forgets about the other nine, but turns the house upside down to find just one. Or the father, who ultimately runs down the road to greet the lost son. You see, the story behind the prodigal son story is that Jesus is the true older brother. And he knows the heart of the father such that he would go into the far country to bring the younger son back. The Pharisees are like the older brother who basically like to hang out and basically do, God, do the father's work for points. They don't know the heart of love that the father has for his son. Each of these pictures are meant to help us understand something of who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm sort of like that manager I appear to be wasting the resources of the God of heaven, but in so doing I'm making friends that will last forever. (laughs) Can I sum up, the preview behind all this is this, that how we deal with life here, how we deal with life here, anticipates what's gonna happen in heaven. Heaven isn't talked about much in our culture today. When's the last time you looked at a website that had the news and talked about people anticipating heaven? But I want to let you know, Christians know how to anticipate heaven in a wonderful way because they see that this life isn't all there is. One day the shadows will fall away and the kingdom will come. And with the eyes of faith, we see something that the rest of people don't see. And we will be made, if you're one of Jesus' managers, made to look sort of kind of dumb and stupid because you wasted an hour on Sunday when you could be out having a great time in your garden, if you're into gardening. I ain't. But if you are, Or you could be riding your motorcycle, because this is the best time to ride your motorcycle, all deference to Steve, but I don't own a motorcycle. Or you could be at home reading a book, which is what I normally do, you see. But instead, we make it a priority to sing the songs that remind us of a reality that will last forever. And in so doing, we welcome people to come to places like this, or come to other, places where they can understand the worldview that can't be seen with physical eyes. I'm almost done. A couple weeks ago, I'm involved with a men's Bible study. When I was here before, some of the guys came with me. We met at the home of Pat Donovan. Pat was a submarine commanding officer, worked at Electric Boat as an engineer. He was all hot to trot to show us his new home. It was in Salem. It was 45 minutes away. I couldn't believe we're driving this far for an hour-long Bible study. I'm kind of gripping and grimmaging, but it was a beautiful house. And Pat led us in a study of the effects of sin in the Christian's life and then the following week on the eternal security of the believer in Jesus. The Saturday after that study on Wednesday, this is two weeks ago, Pat came to the men's prayer breakfast at our church, helped dig a fire pit that's around the property so that people could gather around, have fires and talk. They ate their burgers and went home. Pat wasn't feeling good. He sat down in his chair mid-afternoon, had a heart attack and died, leaving nine children behind. And the guys in the group and the 400 plus people who came to the memorial service last Saturday start to ask some questions. What really matters in life? How do you spend your time, your relationships? How do you anticipate what can't be anticipated? And friends, this story, this story basically says we need to be shrewd in the use of the resources that God's given us because one day we're going to have to give an account. Or in the words of Jim Elliot, one of my favorite words of this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Stepping back, we're here to celebrate the life of Jesus. From an earthly point of view, he wandered around Palestine in a 60 mile radius for three years, left 12 guys and a bunch of other followers, and seemed like an abject failure. But his death and his resurrection changed the scope of history because like this manager, he was shrewd in showing people the greatness of the rich man his father who's in heaven and brothers and sisters I'm going to presume on you all now we are all recipients of that grace and when we speak our thanks to Jesus we receive it again and we say oh Lord thank you for taking my place in dying to pay my debt. With the proviso, to whom much is given, much is required. Let's pray together. Lord, would you take the meager words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, would you take the things that we've thought under the aegis of your spirit this day, and encourages us to be managers of the grace gifts of heaven. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.